the spit zone. Hey guys, we, we like to do discussion as well as uh, uh, me yelling at you on Sunday morning because we feel like it, it really kind of helps you connect with each other and also with our leaders too. So um, Now, I mentioned to you guys last week that um, I love going to restaurants. How many of you guys love going to restaurants? Like, do you, you love just the whole, like, whenever your parents say, hey, we're going out to dinner tonight, it, it feels like Christmas, doesn't it? Like, you, you just get excited. You're just like, oh, awesome, okay? I mean, not to say that you don't like your mom's cooking, but it's a restaurant, right? And so, so I love restaurants. In fact, um, I moved to Texas when I was 19 years old, just, like, packed up and drove my little um, Honda Prelude all the way down the highway from Virginia, all the way to Texas. And I got to Texas, and about a year into living in Texas, uh, somebody introduced me to what is called beef brisket barbecue. Anybody? Are you guys fans? Are you fans? And I'd never heard of this thing called beef brisket barbecue before. Um, where I'm from, a barbecue means like a hamburger grease fire, okay? That's what a barbecue means. Like you fire up the grill and it's just hamburgers and hot dogs, we call that barbecue. I had no idea there was this other world of barbecue that existed here in Texas. So when I first had beef brisket barbecue, I was, my reaction was like, what, what is this? And I said, what's well, beef brisket? I'm like, well, I've heard of, I know what beef is. I mean, obviously it's cow. I'm eating a cow. But I know what steak is. I know what hamburger is. But this brisket, I've never heard of this thing called brisket. Okay? But I ate beef brisket for the first time, and I was, like, just in love with beef brisket barbecue. Okay? And so whenever I went to a barbecue restaurant, I always get the, um, the brisket and the sausage combo. Um, now, my wife and I, I mentioned to you guys last week that we're, we're foodies. We love to watch, like, Food Network, and we like to eat food while we're watching food being made. It's just a big mess. But, um, but we like to uh, try out restaurants that we've heard about or that have specialties. And so we saw this list in the Texas Monthly Magazine about a year ago, uh, the best barbecue list in Texas. This is like straight out of heaven, like into my home. And so um, we began trying to figure out, like, how can we get to, like, the top ten at some point and just try all the different barbecues in Texas. So I heard about this place about an hour and a half from here in Lexington. Anybody know where Lexington is located? It's really far away. Or it's not. It's a small, small town. But um, it's on the way to our men's conference that we do every year. And it's this little place called Snow's Barbecue. They're open one day a week on Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And they only serve for like four hours until they run out of meat. Okay? And they supposedly got the number one beef brisket in the state of Texas. So... I decided that this year, when I went to the men's conference, which is on the way, that um, I would take a little trip at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning up to this place and see if it was true. So I decided to uh, get other people in on this with me. So I got uh, Drew. He's over there in the back. I got um, Zachary Goza and, uh, and Ryan Johnson. And I actually talked these guys into eating brisket at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, okay? And so we drive to Lexington that Saturday morning. We pull up, and there's, like, people from, like, out the door, like, already in line waiting to get this brisket that's from the gods, okay? And uh, 
So we get in line, and we, we um, are waiting. And my plan initially was just to, like, get it to go. Because I'm like, who eats brisket at 8 o'clock in the morning? That's like a brisket-aholic, if you ask me, right? No one eats it that early in the morning. And then, um, but once I got in line, I was just like, i got to try this. I can't just, like, take it to go and eat it for lunch. i got to eat it now. So we actually ate brisket, the best beef brisket in all of Texas, at 8 o'clock in the morning, and ate until our hearts were content. And it was, it was amazing, okay? It was awesome. It was tender. It was juicy. It was like just fireworks going off inside of your mouth, okay? It was awesome. And so I love restaurants. I love going out to eat at restaurants. But here's the, here's the deal with restaurants, though. Restaurants never teach you how to cook, right? They don't teach you how to cook. In fact, um, if, if I had not married the person that I married, um, I would still be, still be eating ramen noodles. And uh, my wife is an amazing cook, and I'm blessed to have her as a wife for many reasons, but that's one of the big reasons, too, is the food. She cooks great food. And so I love to eat. I love to eat good food. But here's the reality. I... I go to restaurants my entire life, and so can you, but you can never learn the first thing about cooking just by going to a restaurant. And so the whole purpose of this series that we're doing in Acts is to hopefully teach you guys how to cook for yourself spiritually, how to feed yourselves spiritually. Um, If I can use an analogy, um, I would compare it to uh, the Mongolian grill. Anybody here like the Mongolian grill where you go and you, like, pick your raw materials and then you... um, you season it yourself, you pick your sauce, and uh, then they put it on the grill for you. Um, now, I will tell you that I think the Mongolian grill is the biggest sham in the world, okay? Because every time I cook my own food there, it tastes horrible, all right? Now, I am the common denominator in that, I know. And it's my fault. But that's the thing, is if you go there and you eat their food and you say it wasn't very good you only have yourself to blame, right? And then they're like, well, you can try again for only $10.99, right? And so if you can go there and try to cook for yourself, but it can, it oftentimes doesn't taste the greatest, right? It doesn't taste like it's just restaurant-quality food, right? Once you figure out that combination, it's just perfect. So this is going to be kind of like the Mongolian grill, where we're bringing the kitchen out to you guys. You guys can learn how to prep your own food, so to speak, and learn how to cook for yourself spiritually, okay? Now, there's a quote I want you to read uh, on the screen. This is uh, D.L. Moody. He said this. Go to my next slide, please. He said, and I quote, I've never found a useful Christian who wasn't a student of the Bible. Now, some of you guys in here claim to be Christians, and um, you've got your ticket stamped to heaven. You're on your way to heaven when you die. You've placed your faith in Christ. But very few of you, I would say, are probably students of God's Word. Very few of us really want to understand God's Word. Now, I know that the excuse that many of you guys throw out is, I don't like to read. How many of you guys say you just don't like to read? You're just not a reader. Alright, raise your hand. It's okay to be... to raise your hand about this, this one deal. So, but here's what I'm going to say to you. I think you're all liars. Okay? Because you... Love to read Facebook. You love to read magazines. You love to read um, text messages. You love to read other things that come across your way throughout the day. And so we can't say that we just don't like to read, right? 
We can't use that as an excuse that we just don't, I just don't read. Alright? And so my challenge to you for this series is that, that you would give us a chance to, to, to show you how to feed yourself spiritually and, and really take that seriously. Because I'll tell you this, if you want to go on just living some shallow, superficial Christian life where you have your ticket stamped to heaven and that's it, then fine, live that way. But if you really want to grow deep as a Christian, if you want to have a marriage with someone at some point, where you have deep conversations about where you're at with God and what God is showing you through Scripture, then learn how to feed yourself spiritually. And our goal is to show you how to do that throughout this series. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse, uh, is verses 1 through 11. And what I'm going to do, uh, you've got some cards on your table there in front of you, and we made these cards up. Our goal was to think of very simple questions that you can take and look at any Bible passage and be able to look at any passage and, and go through these questions and ask these questions about any text and hopefully get something out of it. And so the questions might seem kind of broad, so we're going to do some questions today at your tables, some questions just in the large group discussion with just me talking and so on, but we'll first read this passage and we'll get to our first couple of questions. Verse 1, we'll go through from 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, um, your first three questions are the ones I want you to go through now. What I want to just tell you that real quick is that um, the first three questions are basically this. Okay, who wrote Acts and what do we know about him? Second question is, who was it written to? And I'll give you a hint, the, the name of the guy is in verse 1 and who it's written to. And what do we know about him? I'll tell you that um, you can, of course, use your study Bibles. Um, if you have a smartphone, if you want to know who this guy is in verse 1, enter his name in Google, and you can find out information like this just on the Internet, okay? Now, don't trust everything on the Internet. Like, if you get a site that says, like, Bubba's Bible Study or something like that online, don't, don't listen to Bubba, okay? But other ones are reputable fairly. Um, it's okay to use your iPhones even here to, to look up stuff like that. So do questions 1 through 3 uh, at your tables. Go ahead.
Okay, let's discuss this for a moment as a larger group. Okay, so tell me quickly, who wrote Acts? Luke. You got that one right. Now, what do you know about Luke? Okay, he wasn't one of the twelve, and we know he wrote Acts. Good. Good job, Crosby. Yes. Okay, he was a doctor. Um, what else do you know about Luke? He wrote Luke. You guys are brilliant. You're geniuses. Yes. What's that? He walked with Paul. He traveled with Paul quite a bit. In fact, something he was Paul's like personal physician, possibly. Yes. Was there a hand over here, Jason? You're just stretching. If you're stretching here, I'm going to get you. Okay. Yes. Okay. So he was kind of like a journalist also. He would go interview people. Some people think that he may have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, and gotten his whole account of the... Um, the birth of Christ from her, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. All right, uh, who was it written to? This guy named Theophilus. Now, what do we know about Theophilus? We know he's dead. <laughs> What's that? What's that? Okay, the name means lover of God, so we know that about him. Uh, what else do we know about him? Okay, that's a possibility. Um, really, we don't know a ton about this guy. We just know that Luke was writing this book to him. Um, I will say, when I read this name, I thought, that name sounds really familiar, not just from the Bible, but also from somewhere else. And I had a Bible teacher in high school who wanted to name his kids after Bible characters. But not, not cool names like Elijah or Silas, you know. But um, he named his, kid, named his kid Josiah Theophilus. Don't name your kid Theophilus, okay? But so there's this guy named Theophilus. Listen up. There's this guy named Theophilus that Luke is writing to, and we don't know a ton about this guy, but here's, listen up. Here's, here's why this matters, because some think that this guy may be a new believer, or they think he might be a seeking unbeliever, someone who's seeking. We're not quite sure, but he may be one of those two things. And the reason why who he's writing to is important is because there's a good chance that Theophilus was much like many of you. If he was a new believer, then that's like probably many of you. If he was not quite a believer yet, guys, stop playing games over there, please. Thank you. If, if he was not yet a believer, but someone who was seeking, then um, that might be so, like some of you as well. And so as you read through the book, you can understand this is, in a sense, written to a person that's much like many of you are. Okay? Also, um, another question that we didn't ask at your tables, but I'll talk about it, is when was it written? Now, if you have a study Bible, it might say it was written anywhere from uh, 63 A.D. to 70 A.D., which is about um, 63 years after the birth of Christ. Now, uh, the reason why this is important is this. Because if it was written 30 years after Christ died on the cross and he resurrected and ascended, now some people might think, well, it was written so long after Christ died that can we really trust it? Can we really believe it? But I would say it's the complete opposite. I would say that because the church grew in health and the church grew in numbers over those 30 years and the book was then written, that it shows an even greater proof for the beginning of the church and how the church began. Secondly, it was written so soon after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that 
the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection were still alive. So if someone's writing books about this person, Jesus, and the beginning of the church, then they could then go ask people that, that, that they say saw it and ask them, did this really happen? Is this really true? So it gives you great confidence knowing that this book is, is true and from God because of, of when it was written as well. Now the third question we talked about today was, uh, what parts of the passage do you not understand? I can find a couple here. Uh, in verse 5, um, Jesus makes this crazy statement about, uh, John baptized you with water, but, but the Holy Spirit will baptize you um, in the coming days. Now, um, if you read that, you're probably confused, like, what's Holy Spirit baptism? That sounds kind of like a crazy charismatic church or something like that, doesn't it? Um, you picture uh, people use words like, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? And you picture some guy like falling over on the floor and convulsing and being on TV and stuff like that. Now, what this means is um, Jesus is basically saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell believers. That's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that you're going to, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. And so think about this. You guys that sit right here right now, you have God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of you. We're not sure that that's how it happened before Jesus came. Before Christ came, all we really know is that the Holy Spirit would influence people, but we're not quite sure the Holy Spirit actually came to indwell people in the way that he does today for Christians. So, so you knowing that's the case, how does that change how you view God? How does it change how you see God, knowing that He is dwelling in you as a believer? We'll expound this a little bit more in a minute. Um, now, He also says, uh, the disciples ask the question, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what they're asking about is, they're asking, Jesus, when are you going to uh, kick the Romans out and let us have our land back? Okay? That's the question they're asking. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but this, that's the question they're asking when they, they ask that question. Now, um, I also want to discuss with you briefly that uh, when you're looking at a passage, you'll find like little letters next to verses, like small, like really tiny letters, you barely see them. Um, those are called cross-references. So you'll notice that in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you'll notice it cross-referenced with Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And they're very similar. And so what I want to show you guys to do is that whenever you're looking at a passage, you go, hey, what does that mean? Look for the small letter. That's a cross-reference. Look for the small letter that matches the letter in the margin. And uh, you're going to read a cross-reference of that passage. What that is, is any kind of related phrase or related passage, the Bible is kind of interlinked, where you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so it's a chance for you to see that passage or that idea in a bigger context or a different context. And so there's a, there's a, the first part of Luke is all about um, Theophilus. He says some more things there about how he, he researched and he gathered information about how um, Jesus Christ uh, did what he did. And so you can cross-reference things to see if, uh, uh, what certain things mean in Scripture. Now, um, we also, uh, let's go ahead and go to our next uh, passage here. Let me see here. Let's go ahead and go to your next, let's see, three questions, four, five, and six. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, go, go questions uh, four, five, and six, and uh, discuss those for a few moments. Actually, just four and five, sorry, just four and five. 
Okay, let's discuss question four briefly. Uh, question four was, what part of this passage stands out to you and why? And when I ask that question, I'm talking about, you ever read a passage, a scripture, a chapter, and there's always that one or two verses that kind of leap off the page at you? You know what I'm talking about? Have you guys experienced that before, or is that just me? It's just me. Okay. Uh, but there's a, there's a part of scripture at times that actually, you read a passage, you go, that one just kind of speaks to me. And uh, the one that speaks to me in this one is, is verse 8. This is, verse 8 is really the theme verse for the entire book of Acts. It's one of the most important uh, verses in the whole book. But here's what um, stands out about this passage. The disciples had just asked the question. Follow this. They had just asked the question, When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now what that question is implying is, When are you going to kick the Romans out and let us have our land back? That's what they're wanting to know. And Jesus' response is verse 8. And he says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To which the disciples, I'm sure, replied, That sounds great. Okay? That's not the answer they were looking for. And so in verse 8, you have this response from Jesus Here's what Jesus is telling them. And you've got to know where these places are located. They're saying, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Everyone knows where Jerusalem is. Judea is kind of like the the region around Jerusalem. Then we have Samaria. Let's talk about Samaria. Do you guys know what Samaria was? It was the place that was looked down upon by the Jews. It was a place where there was lots of idolatry. Lots of pagan worship. They saw the Samaritans as completely less than. In fact, they hated the Samaritans so much that when they're going from north to south or south to north, they would walk around Samaria. They would go out of their way and walk around that region. They hated the Samaritans so much. That's Samaria. So Jesus is saying, you guys, Jews, you are going to go to Samaria. And you're going to be my witnesses. Okay? Let that sink in for just a moment. The people that you hate, you're going to witness to them. You're going to share me with them. Then he goes on to say, but not just there, but to the ends of the earth. Now, that would include a place like Rome. Now, these people are being oppressed by Rome. They're being occupied by Rome. They hate the Romans as much, if not more, than Samaritans. Jesus is saying, you are going to go with the gospel all the way to a place like Rome. And guess what? You're going to be my witnesses to the very people that are oppressing you. To the very people that you hate. And he didn't say this in the verse, but this is what happened. What happened to the apostles? Disciples? They got killed for it. So so the people that are oppressing them, Christ is saying, you're going to go and share and be my witnesses to those people that you hate, the people that are oppressing you, and you're going to get killed for it. Sign me up, right? That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, when you look at that and how it relates to us, who are the people that you won't share Christ with because you don't think they deserve it? Who are the people that you think are less than? Who are the people that you 
see as oppressors, so to speak? Who are the authoritative figures in your life that you want to rebel against and take matters into your own hands and not trust God to do what is right? Who are the people that you think you are better than? Who are the ones that you think they don't deserve the gospel, they don't deserve the grace of Christ, like I do? I deserve the grace of Christ, right? So who are those people in your life? Now, um, I want to show you some principles you can apply to your life when you think about a passage like this. Uh, We'll go through these pretty quick and we'll wrap up in just a minute. But um, here's some statements that you can think of when you think of principles you can apply to your life from a passage like this. Here's the first one. Sometimes we want to change only our circumstances while Jesus wants to change us. Now, what I mean by that is this. The disciples wanted to change the circumstances they were in. When are you going to give us our land back and keep the Romans out? Change our circumstances, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to change you. And sometimes changing you requires leaving your circumstances the way that they are. So if you're someone who's sitting here going, you're praying for certain circumstances to change, it's not wrong to pray for circumstances to change, but sometimes the answer from God is, I want to change you in the midst of those circumstances. I want to make you the kind of person that loves your enemies, that is willing to share and be my witness with people that you don't like. That's what I want to change. I want to change you, not just your circumstances. Next slide. When Jesus changes you, you'll want him to change your enemies. When Jesus fully changes your heart, you'll want to see, you'll have a passion to want to see your enemies come to know Christ. The people that you don't like, the ones you can't stand, you'll want to see them come to know Christ. If you're not quite there yet, then Jesus fully hasn't changed your heart yet. He just hasn't. Next slide. When Jesus... Uh, Actually, this one says, God's work requires God's power. God's work requires God's power. So, the disciples, I'm sure, were scared out of their minds about what Christ is asking them to do. You're going to ask us to do what? And God says, Jesus says, my power will come upon you as you're my witnesses. Now, I want you to think about yourself in this situation. What are the things that you are scared to do? that you're saying no to God about when it comes to your walk with God. Because you don't think you have the power, you don't feel adequate, and guess what? Here's the good news. It's good. It's good that you don't feel like you have the power. It's good that you don't feel adequate because that's where God comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in to fill the gap. You know, um, the fact that I'm doing this job as a youth pastor is completely comical to me. God has a sense of humor because, you know, when I was, in, when I was in, at your age, my youth pastor asked me to share one night at a youth rally, share my testimony, and it was the most frightening experience of my life up to that point. I hated public speaking. I hated it. I'd rather die than do that. And then God has me doing this. This is not me. This is not my power. This is laughable that I'm even doing this job right now. It's a total, God has a sense of humor. And so what are the things that you're scared to obey Christ and scared to do because you don't think you can do it? And God says to you, that's, that's good news that you think you can't because I can through you. 
It's in your weakness that I'm that I make you strong. So one of the things that you're you're afraid to step out in faith about when it comes to your walk with God. Um, now another question I want to uh, get to is on your card there. This is the question I think that really kind of reveals the sin in our hearts. So the question at the end there in the, under the apply section of your card, and it says, "What idols are keeping you from obeying these truths?" This is the one that um, is going to hurt a bit, okay? And whenever you're looking at the Bible, you have to look at it like this. The point of the Bible is to change you, okay? That's never, never a comfortable experience. So when you read in the Bible, you've got to always ask the question, okay, what idols or what things in my life are keeping me from obeying these truths? Because if you don't identify those things, then you can't really turn from those things and repent and turn toward Christ. You can't confess sin you don't know about. And so the whole point of Scripture is to look at Scripture and go, okay, what sin is in my life that's keeping me from obeying Christ in this truth? And so when you think of this passage, I want to ask you some questions. As I said before, are there people that you think don't deserve the gospel? Is, is that an idol in your life? Are there people that you look at and go, they just don't deserve the gospel. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve my attention, my love. I mean, I'll get real honest. Are, are you a racist? Are you a racist? Do you see certain ethnic groups that aren't like you as less than than you are? Are you a racist? Do you look at the world around you and think God can't change it? Do you look at the world around you and say, God can't change the world I live in. I'm just going to worry about me. Can, can you imagine that the disciples that have that attitude, we would not be sitting here today having this discussion right now. What, what they did through the power of the Holy Spirit changed the world and changed a pagan culture. So who are we to sit there and think that God can't change the cultures that you live in through the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you have that kind of faith that God can change a world and a culture that is not right now worshiping Him and following after Him? You see, you and I are called to be witnesses. In this passage, it says, you'll be my witnesses. What a witness is, is someone who has just seen something and they've heard something. When we think of witness, we think of having to get out the tract and go, okay, um, here's the four spiritual laws and read someone some random track on the street, and that's witnessing, that's evangelism. That's a horrible way to witness. I think the best way to witness is to tell someone what God has done in your life. Can you share that with somebody? Can you share with, with other people? Here's what I have seen. Here's what I have heard. Here's what I've seen God do in my life. But here's the, the problem with that, is that for some of you guys in the room right now, God hasn't done anything in your life. There's nothing to tell. You haven't let him work yet. And, and my challenge to you this morning is that if you're someone who has not allowed Christ to change you yet, that today that you make that decision, today you decide, you know, I want to be changed by Christ in the same way the disciples were changed by Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want to go against the culture that I live in. I want to actually follow him, choose to follow him, choose to have a relationship with him. I want to have faith in Him. That if you're not quite there yet, that you make that decision for that to happen today. 
I'm not going to lead some prayer from the stage. I'm just going to tell you to, between you and God, you tell God that you want to start a relationship with Him. You want to follow Him for the rest of your life. If that is you today, then make today, make that decision today. Don't wait any longer on following Christ or not. You have several questions at the, at the end here. Uh, good, let's do questions six through eight. To wrap up, you guys go ahead and pray at tables uh, to close out. So go ahead and discuss those last three questions.